This is an ABC podcast. I love the word belonging much more than diversity and inclusion, to be quite honest. And I've been working in this space on and off for a while. I think one of the few times we don't feel invisible is when we're paraded out for some tokenistic event or a specific occasion. It's been challenging because I am not often represented in the workplace. There's a bamboo ceiling here, but there's also a great wall back there, and it's not even erected by our own people. I was the only black woman in a meeting or on a team or sometimes even in the building. The stakes become even, even higher when there were so few of us and it undermines your self-esteem and confidence when you see others progressing faster and yet the markers for you keep shifting. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we're diving into cultural diversity and inclusion at work, what's behind the lack of diversity in leadership roles, and what can be done about it. It's a lot to bite off, so we've decided to make it a special two-part program. This is part one. First, let's dive into something many Asian Australians experience at work. We call it the bamboo ceiling, Lisa. That's Jay Yung Lo the director of ANU Centre for Asian Australian Leadership. Their work focuses on the Asian Australian community and their lack of representation in leadership roles. The bamboo ceiling is a combination of individual, cultural and organisational factors that impede career progress inside organisations and workplaces. And Jae-yung, have you experienced the bamboo ceiling? I have, unfortunately, uh, like many Asian Australians. In terms of uh, the most clear memory that I have of the bamboo ceiling was early parts of my career when I was working in the non-for-profit sector where people assumed that I was just an accountant or an IT person. I think the biggest exposure I had to the ceiling was when I was elected as a local government councillor for the city of Monash in 2008. And I remember in 2009, I attended a local government conference here in the state of Victoria where I was representing my council and I walked into the room where the uh, the staging area was, where people were meeting, you know, where people were serving breakfast and coffee and tea. Um, got there to the conference a little bit early and I walked in, had the very horrible mistake of wearing a black suit and a white shirt. And this regional counsellor came up to me and said, excuse me, young man, can you please get me a cup of coffee? Oh. And I was like, okay, no, I'm look, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm actually a delegate here representing my council. The worst part of that was, Lisa, was she didn't even believe me. So what? she didn't believe me and she said to me, this is a really um, trumped-up excuse to not do your job. So oh. she insisted to speak to my manager and I'm like, hang on, I don't know what I'm talking about. So, so, you know, she's trying to find the manager and trying to sort of like, you know, call me out saying I wasn't doing my job. So it took her a while to sink in that I was a local government counsellor. I remember one of the first tasks I had as a counsellor was trying to organise meetings with directors and the CEO to try and tell them about my vision, why I got elected, what I'm hoping to achieve in this term. And again, bamboo ceiling experience, they would not even meet with me unless I bring in the mayor, who was a 40-plus-year-old Greek-Australian, unless I bring him in, they wouldn't meet with me. So, again, face-to-face with the bamboo ceiling, I didn't know what this was. That was a clear indication that the ceiling exists and it's also spurred me on to take on this current role in trying to break down this ceiling for current and future Asian-Australian generations. 
So what are the stats, Jae-yong, when it comes to Asian Australians in leadership roles? So Lisa, our research has identified that 14.5% of the Australian population has an Asian heritage, yet only 1.6% hold a CEO, uh, C-suite or a sort of senior leadership role, like for example, a vice chancellorship, a chancellorship at universities, you know, those who hold uh, federal ministry positions, secretary positions within the Australian public service or other state-based public services. So those numbers are pretty stark, which is why our mission is to try and increase representation of Asian Australians to ensure our institutions reflect contemporary modern Australia. So we know that Australia is a multicultural society. It's one of the defining features of us as a country and a defining feature of our modern character. Put very simply, about a quarter of our population estimated to have a non-European or Indigenous background. Uh, If we're holding a mirror up to ourselves, we're simply not seeing who we are in our positions of leadership in major institutions. That's former Race Discrimination Commissioner Tim Sopamasan. So what we're talking about here isn't an issue that's confined to any one sector. It's not something confined to business or to government or to the university world. It's something that seems endemic in Australian society and in Australian organisational life. What do you think is behind the lack of representation in leadership positions? There may be some expectations attached to how leaders must look and perform and how they must sound, how they must go about their business, the sort of bearing that they have, their temperament, uh, how they carry themselves, their presence. And all of these things may add up to creating some barriers for those from minority backgrounds. Uh, What we might be seeing play out in Australian organisational life um, are stereotypes about people being very good technicians or people being very good at performing highly technical roles or being specialists in specific areas. But to be a leader or a a people manager or someone who's given a responsibility within an organisation, that's a different thing. People would associate those roles with different skill sets, different temperaments. So in, in some ways, what you're seeing here is a possible trap of the model minority, the idea here that that your top achieving graduates uh, are inevitably going to end up in positions of leadership. I don't think that's the correct assumption. If anything, being possessed with book smarts, being academically brilliant, being technically proficient may get in the way of you moving ahead within Australian organisations because you can get quickly pigeonholed in your early years of your career as someone who might be very good at doing the work in the back office or doing the work in producing reports or crunching the numbers, doing the analytics. But when it comes to winning new clients, when it comes to presenting in front of public audiences, when it comes to dealing with stakeholders and investors, Uh, those skills may not be as valued. And that's when the gift of the gab comes in. Uh, That's when your networking abilities come in. That's when your extroversion becomes an asset. So what could be at play here is some cultural defaults, stereotypes and attributes uh, coming together to uh, form some, some barriers and some biases that are playing out across all of Australian organizational life. At the root of these barriers and biases is what Tim calls 
invisible discrimination. We often think of racial discrimination as something that's very overt and something that typically takes the form of an outburst of vitriol and threats of violence that play out and that get captured on mobile phones and then get airtime on social media. The reality that's closer to the mark is that when discrimination does play out, it, it is more covert, it is more subtle. And someone may be treating you with perfect courtesy and be talking to you with a smile, uh, but if they're thinking in their heads that you don't really belong or that you may not be cut out for this role uh, because the fit isn't quite right, regardless of your qualifications, that works as invisible discrimination. And that's much harder to tackle than tackling overt or violent forms of hatred and racism. But it's the kind of challenge that we need to wrestle with if we are going to make progress on diversity and representation in our society. Hello, I'm Jean Jingyin Sum. I am a transformational life coach, inspirational speaker, writer, dancer, and lover of life. I am of Asian Australian background. And in the not-for-profit space, there aren't too many leaders from culturally diverse backgrounds. Often there are a lot of uh, white women in this space. And my experience of working in, in this industry has been navigating and finding ways to bring in a more diverse perspective into our um, discussions and into the way we deliver solutions to the community. What motivated me to create uh, a mentoring program for Asian Australian women was when I attended the first ever Asian Australian Leadership Summit a few years ago was this sense of belonging. Looking around and realising, wow, these people look like me and they talk like me. And when I got talking to some 20-something-year-olds Asian women, I realised that times have not really shifted a whole lot. They were still experiencing the same barriers that I did. They were still feeling unheard in meeting rooms. And I thought, wow, almost 20 years on and nothing has changed. So that really spurred me and lit a fire in me to set up a mentoring program for these women. I think at the heart of this is the concept of belonging. What are your thoughts on this? I love the idea and also the movement towards the word belonging and away from diversity and inclusion. The word belonging connects us with us as human species a lot closer than diversity and inclusion. And there's this innate sense or innate desire to belong for all of us, regardless of our identity, regardless of where we are, what we do. And belonging to me has been an important theme as an Asian Australian woman where I grew up in small country towns and cities. It's been challenging because I am not often represented in the workplace. And so if employers and managers 
can really grasp and can really take that step to understand what does belonging mean to them as an organization, then they would go so far and really attract the staff and the talent who really want to be there and to help the place thrive. So what would be your message to organisations? My message to organisations who really want to bring in more diverse and inclusive voices into their work and leadership into their organisation is taking the time to really listen and to connect with people from different backgrounds. And the way that these individuals present themselves may not be a stereotypical Australian way of speaking loud and coming forth in an assertive way. I suggest taking the time to really get to know them, either through, you know, in a social setting, asking them to go for a coffee or tea and lunch, very simple things that can be done. And also in meetings, giving the quieter voices the opportunity to speak and creating that space to enable them, to give them the confidence to speak. And also know that they may not have been brought up in the same environment as many of us have in the sense of some, for some people, they may not speak unless spoken to. And when then when they are spoken to, it could really put them on the spot. It could be really nerve wracking experience for them. So a way to go around that is perhaps in a one-on-one meeting to ask them for their opinion and to ask whether they would like to share this in the meeting so that you give them a heads up, they can think about it, and then they have the opportunity to present in front of more people. We're talking about cultural diversity, inclusion and belonging in the workplace and how Australia's multiculturalism isn't reflected in leadership roles. We've learned about the phenomenon called the bamboo ceiling, where professionals with Asian heritage struggle to break through to management and leadership roles. We've just heard from Jean Sum about why she created a mentoring program for Asian Australian women. And now, let's hear another personal story from a young Asian Australian professional but understandably, she wants to stay anonymous to not jeopardise her job. In my experience, there's a different kind of ceiling that you deal with and a different barrier um, when you try and go for roles and positions. I was once offered the opportunity to interview for a role that would involve travelling to Asia and working with Asian clients and speaking Asian language, um, which I was able to do. But I was told by the white male interviewer that I wasn't Chinese enough that I'd be too Aussie um, if I went and worked in Asia because I would look and sound like an Asian, but I wouldn't be able to offer them Asian legal advice or Asian business advice. And so there's a bamboo ceiling here, but there's also a great wall back there and it's not even erected by our own people. I definitely think we do feel invisible sometimes because, um, you know, we may get applauded for our work, which is great, whether it's in emails or whether it's just, you know, someone saying, hey, you know, you did a really good job on such and such the other day. But, you know, I hardly ever got put up for awards and gifts and rewards and benefits that, you know, firms generally tend to give um, outstanding employees. I think one of the few times we don't feel invisible is when we're paraded out for some tokenistic event or, 
you know, a, a specific occasion. So I've been in many workplaces where um, they'll have some cupcakes, they'll have some festivities, they'll put up some nice decoration because it's Chinese New Year or because, you know, it's International Women's Day, but there isn't actually any actual impactful action taken to improve the workplace and improve the opportunities available for diverse people. When I look back at my university days, the Dean's List, the university medals always incorporated a lot of diverse people. When I look at the graduate cohorts and the interns that we get in, that's not reflective of those high performers and high achievers that I used to be in university with. And even when I curiously looked it up recently, the Dean's List and the University Medals List are still very diverse, but unfortunately we don't see that with our grad cohorts. This feeling of invisibility is felt by many workers around the world, particularly for women of colour in America. Octavia Gorodima is a career coach for underrepresented professionals. She hears and sees a pattern when it comes to culturally diverse workers trying to advance their career and get a promotion. While multicultural women are really keen to advance to senior roles, only 46% of the underrepresented women surveyed had attended a meeting with senior executives in the last two years compared to 63% of white men. The opportunities to advance are so much harder. And that's before you bring to the table that we are often the only. So there were so many times in my own personal career where I was the only black woman in a meeting or on a team or sometimes even in the building. So the stakes become even, even higher when there were so few of us. I have coached individuals who suddenly discovered they weren't as visible as they should be when they were targeting promotions and suddenly weren't being considered, yet the responsibilities kept increasing. So they were obviously deemed to be competent and they were given more and more responsibilities, but we're not getting the recognition. And one of my coaching clients actually found that she didn't have that support at that level of her manager. And she came to me and said, I don't know what to do. I want to advance. I'm trying my best to find out how to do that. And I feel like there's a wall in front of me. And in the end, through coaching, we were able to find ways for her to find a sponsor who wasn't at her company, but actually was within her industry. And she was able to foster relationships and connections that after taking the time and taking meetings and getting advice and being introduced where she was able to find the role at the level that she wanted somewhere else. You may have heard Octavia say sponsor there. Sponsors play an important role when it comes to lifting up workers. A sponsor is someone who ignites opportunities for you, who leverages their connections to help open doors for you. A sponsor is someone who says your name and talks about your attributes and acumen even when you're not in the room to others. Jayung Lo has also experienced this and points out the important difference between a mentor and a sponsor. I've had the opportunity of having both in my career and I found that a mentor is someone great that if you want to share ideas with or someone to talk to or to, uh, you know, have, a, have a, you know, a private moment to sort of express your frustrations or celebrate your aspirations. But a sponsor is very different. A sponsor is somebody who does everything a mentor does but goes beyond and that is having skin in the game, 
putting his or her credibility and reputation on the line to further your own aspirations and to help those that they are sponsoring. So I think there is a distinct difference and it's really important that we not only have both uh, mentors and sponsors as part of the movement to break down this bamboo ceiling, but actually encourage more mentors to become sponsors. So that's one small solution. But what else needs to happen to increase diverse leadership? For organisations and senior leadership teams to make this a main course rather than a dessert or an appetiser. So at the moment, diversity and inclusion is simply an appetiser that people do because it's the right thing to do. It's also a tick-the-box exercise driven by human resources. A lot of HR departments are driving these type of agendas. So for a lot of institutions and workplaces, it's just, yes, great, tick the box, we're doing it. But we are wanting people to wanting more. We want people to actually, you know, see that this could be more than an appetiser, that you can actually have it as a main. So that's the agenda that we're pushing is that you need to put this front and centre all over your work. It needs to be mainstream. It can't just be a side hustle for an organisation. It needs to happen at the top levels. Both are pushed from bottom up and top down. So I always remind people, Lisa, that, you know, the workplace is very different today. It's very different from when you and I first joined the workforce, and that is young people, graduates, uh, you know, early professionals are more curious now and they are more you know, willing to call out these type of anomalies. And that is, you know, if they see their leadership teams not reflective of their own or if they don't see people that looks like them or sounds like them or has similar experiences to them in leadership positions, they will call this out. My generation may be a bit more docile and a little bit more, you know, let's focus on doing the job because our parents always teach us if you work hard, you will be rewarded. Yes, to a certain degree, but no, you need to sort of add in a few other things as well to, you know, puff up your chest. And I call it the peacock analogy where you need to flash your plumage a little bit sometimes to try and get attention. So, you know, having that accountability is super important. You know, you need to have leaders constantly question progress, constantly challenging, are we doing things right? And we need more leaders in C-suite positions currently in the workplace to step up and do that. So accountability is super important. And Jay Jung says another important element is data. We need data. We need more accurate data to understand what the actual makeup is of our society as well as our workplaces. One of the questions that our centre, Cal, is tackling is um, we are the only English-speaking country that does not collect data or ask questions specifically in our national census on ethnicity. So we ask questions on ancestry and we ask questions on whether you were born overseas or born in Australia and what languages you speak at home. Ancestry is a very interesting question because I have a lot of Asian Australian friends who are, for example, born in Australia that look at ancestry. They probably wouldn't count five, six generations back. They'll be like, I'm born in Australia, I'm Australian. So when you actually put the word ethnicity and race, like what the Americans do, what the Canadians do, what the British do, and even the Kiwis, what they do is what is your ethnicity and race? People automatically know what to fill in and what to tick or what to drop in, in those in those columns. So we need better data collection because that would enable us to develop appropriate targets and appropriate strategies to how to address the indifference and imbalance between those in leadership positions and to reflect modern contemporary Australia. And achieving this isn't just to get the warm and fuzzies. It hits the three Ps as well. I'll let Jay Young explain. Productivity, profitability and performance. So we need to understand through economic modelling and through our research what cultural diversity brings, especially cultural diversity at the leadership level, would impact on those three Ps because 
that would immediately change the game in terms of how people perceive diversity and inclusion. Thanks to my guests, Jae-Yung Lo, Director of ANU Centre for Asian Australian Leadership, former Race Discrimination Commissioner Tim Sopamasan and career coach Octavia Gorodima. Next time, in part two, we'll be diving into some more solutions to this. For all of us, whether you're a manager, a leader, or an individual contributor in an organisation, there's so much value in, in really reflecting on how you open uh, space for people, how you create an opportunity for others to express their opinions, um, how you amplify others in an organisation who may not have the same privilege or access or positional privilege, for example, in a way that others now see them differently and that, frankly, gives those individuals that sense of freedom and, you know, and just, oof, I am, I'm welcomed, I'm seen, I can contribute here to my fullest capacity. That's next time on This Working Life with me, Lisa Leong. Thanks to producer Zoe Ferguson. And until next time, love your work. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.